This episode of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike is brought to you by Sweetwater. Now, July is drum month at Sweetwater.com, and all month long, you'll be able to get incredible deals on shell packs, cymbals, hand percussion, electronic drum kits, drum mic bundles, and tons more. Plus, they have killer financing options that make owning your dream kit a reality. So shop the best drum deals of the summer at Sweetwater.com slash sale. And remember, nobody beats Sweetwater in drums. What's up, everyone, and welcome into episode 151 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. I hope you guys are all doing absolutely fantastic. We've got a special episode for you today. After Mike and I get all caught up, we are going to finally tackle all that mail that's been stuck in our mailbag. So if you've been waiting two to three months to find out whether or not you should buy that 8-inch splash symbol, today is the day that you get your answer. So if you're ready, let's dive straight into 15 minutes of Mike and I talking about absolutely nothing. Man, while taking gum out of your mouth, you're still able to snap. You are officially like in my top ten most talented friends. That was pretty impressive. Always multitasking. That's what we Hell do. Hell yeah! Don't do That's anything right, well, buddy. but I do a lot of things at once. Uh, you're no Joey Chestnut. What did you do? Seventy-four hot dogs oh this time around. God, and they like botched the count. Right? Yeah, they gave him 64 at first. That was no, no, by like, the way, 10 more to that. So he knew yeah. right away, too. He was like 74. I saw him, he like told the judges, 74. <laughs> he knew yeah, what yeah. he did. It, it was, uh, I saw him get interviewed. He's like, Yeah, I started off with a great pace, and the judges just couldn't keep up with me. <laughs> it was so funny. There, he was like giving the interview like it was a real sport. And I, it's like, I get it, man. I mean, those guys, they go out on tour. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about competitive eating, Joey Chestnut, 74 hot dogs, new world record. Um, but <laughs> I was trying to picture, like, because you get a pack of the eight hot dogs, it's like, it's a uh, you know size of like a like a small book like a paperback book. It's an eight inch tom. It's an eight inch tom. So yeah. you gotta that's eight. So nearly ten times that. I mean, how what happens to his abdomen? Does he have a uh, liver? Does he have lungs? I mean, it, it's the buns. Yeah. I mean, how do you get that? I mean, I get they dip it in water. Like, I, I, it's I can't handle it. Like, I can't even watch the highlights. I get nauseous watching the highlights. <laughs> but the thing is, it's not once a year for old. Joseph Chestnut, yeah, that guy's doing like the Iowa State Fair tomorrow. He'll be at the Sacramento State Fair on Wednesday. I think he did a and, shrimp cocktail con- uh, world record not oh, long yeah. ago. <laughs> I'm not kidding about the one in Iowa. I think they're doing uh, cockroaches in Iowa. What? How many cockroaches can you? Yeah, something like that, like fried He's cockroaches that, or something he? like that. I don't know. I'm telling you, man. It's those guys are on tour. They're living the high life. <laughs> They're killing it. Uh, what is what is the? I mean, I didn't. I really didn't watch. It. I just saw it happen to get a little bit of love on Sports Center this morning. But what is the grand prize money for eating 74 hot dogs? I don't know. And I was thinking the same thing. I have no idea. The dude's won it like 11 times. I can't imagine what his. I mean, whatever he wins, it's it's almost like. Like golf, it's like yeah, you you won some money, but your endorsements, his endorsements from Nathan's Hot Dogs. I mean, that's got to be he's just raking it in. All right, I mean, I just did a real quick. I mean, this is not necessarily <laughs> you have to know don't verifiable you? <laughs> information. So this is an eleven-time world world hot dog eating champion. If you just, <laughs> if you, of course it is. If you Google Joey Chestnut net worth, eight hundred thousand dollars. He's won it hmm. eleven times. Hmm. He's going to need a little. Maybe he spent a lot on like stomach surgery. I don't know. He's going to need a little more cheddar than that. The top prize is ten thousand dollars at the Nathan's. Oh, that's some bull crap right there. <laughs> My goodness. Like seriously, okay. If somebody came up to you at a restaurant and said, "I'll give you ten thousand dollars," what would be the cap for you? Where you said, "I I will do this, but I won't do more." Like I think I would cap out for ten grand. 15 hot dogs with buns. I, 10 grand? I don't even know if I could do that. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd have no desire to just eat until I want to explode and then shove some more in my mouth. It's just not... Right. Two hot dogs and I'm I'm sick for a day. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, God. That's, I, I, I honestly, I think I'd just be like, go to the next table. Take your suitcase of ones to the uh, next table. Uh, what I'm I want to know is why would anyone else try to compete? Like, if he's there, just just eat a hot dog leisurely and just enjoy, yeah. it. enjoy the experience. I mean, what? Because I don't understand what. 
like let's say you came in fourth and you go home and you're like babe 52 hot dogs <laughs> first of all she's not impressed then she's like okay but what did you get and he's like oh well uh this ribbon because joseph chestnut walked away with a cool 10 g's like and she's like wait he ate 74 and all he got was 10 grand honey you need a new hobby like, <laughs> i mean you know nathan's can afford more than 10 grand come on yeah that's like i said i think he's racking it in from the endorsements man but i mean what a weird thing drums you think we should talk drums <laughs> this is way off topic i thought last week was bad damn how are uh, you pal how's your drum solo developing it's it's I'm really enjoying it. I got to say the process of sharing the process publicly is really solidifying the solo because I'm telling a camera what I'm going to do. And it's really solidifying these chapters. Mm. The one thing that so obviously in in the Instagram format, I don't have enough time to tell people what's in depth, what's really going on. So all the Mike's Lessons students. Uh, we'll be seeing it today. We're doing a special live lesson at 5 p.m. tonight where I, I kind of went to them and said, look, you're seeing me share this information for free on Instagram, but you guys pay for your content. Let's do a half an hour on what I'm really going through because I can only tell so much in one-minute chunks. Um, so the one thing that I don't think most people know, and I'm actually curious about your take on this because I, I know that you're starting to prep a solo or, or learning more about that solo world if you're going to have to do things like PASIC and, and bigger clinics. But I don't know if I'll ever play through the solo maybe more than once from start to finish um, before I get on a plane to Asia mm. because this is the closest I'll ever get to jazz. Like, I want to know the format, just like jazz form. I want to have the form down, but I want the moment to happen in the moment. And I want whatever my day was like. If I was inspired by a bunch of Taiwanese culture and I'm feeling this just buzz through my body, I want that to change the solo from how it was played last night. Um, right. This yeah. is the closest I'll ever get to what Miles Davis was asking from his musicians. Yeah. You know, like Practice I've got the, the vocabulary, yeah, but yeah. I'm practicing up on stage. But there's a form to keep me safe. It's not free jazz. I'm not just, you know, I and I, I kind of gotten a thing, not a spat by any means, but I answered some guy on Instagram that was like, when are you going to drop all of this? That was quiet. <laughs> when he... <laughs> Of course, I put my phone on top of a CD case. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you couldn't find a minor shaker. Um, so anyways, uh, he was like, when are you going to drop all the form and just play for the sake of playing? And I was like, I don't think you've ever tried to give a, a drum clinic in front of 2,000 people, 2,000 drummers in a foreign country on a foreign kit. That form is actually what's giving me the freedom to be creative because I feel safe inside of this form. Now I can be creative. If you just tell me, go be cool for 10 minutes, that's that's a different level. I think Thomas Lang and Virgil Donati and those guys maybe could do that, but I can't. I need that safety net of a form. Yeah, and I don't – I mean that's a tough one too. I think there's only a few people who really can do that, truly, truly improvise in the moment and not play anything. Even though they say, I'm just going to go play, they're still playing stuff that they always play. I mean that – Right. You're not going to yeah. just say, all right, today I'm going to do something I've never, ever tried before. I'm bringing a double pedal out. Right. I want to just go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think my thought is somewhere in between the two where I don't want a through-composed drum solo. But I also don't want what you just said. I don't want to just wing it. I think my problem with winging it for 10 minutes would be that wherever I get – I'm too in the moment to be able to zoom out and say, you know what? We should change. We should do this. I should go here or there. So the safety net that I have is whatever I'm playing, the tempo and the feel was already set up way beforehand because I said I want to improvise in this tempo and in this style. And I know that from that style, it's going to this next thing. How I get there, I don't know and I don't want to know. But I do know while I'm playing – I at least have that grain of sand in my head going like, hey, man, just so you know, you're going to pull back the reins and you're going into that halftime feel whenever you're ready to make a gear shift. Mm. But at the same time, I don't want to be on the clock. If if I'm in this moment and I'm improvising and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the stuff I've been practicing for years and it's finally coming out in the moment. I don't want to get out of it just because it's been 48 seconds and that's what I deemed was my time to improvise. Yeah. You know, yourself like 32 um, bars. The thing for me that I have a hard time with is keeping track of – the perception of time like yes 
you can lose 15 minutes just kind of noodling around and you might think it was super awesome i mean it happens to me all the time when i when i make videos of me just just exploring i'm like man that felt like a a pretty intense 10 minutes and then i watch it back i'm like dang i'm bored after a minute and a half like this has got to stop like that's that's hard for me i think having that structure would would help for me yeah and so for me i just said okay it's going to be an eight to ten minute solo let's go with four chapters and that like i said that structure just gives me confidence that like i know where i'm at and i know where i'm going and i also know what's coming up which is stopping me from throwing my craziest fastest blazing chops into the first two minutes because i know what gear i'll be hitting in chapter three Mm -hmm. and i know where chapter four is taking me so i'm able to play with the emotions of the crowd a little bit more because i do know what those chapters are so the solo is good i would say the chapters themselves are all worked out but i'm still physically working out the transition. So what I'll do is I'll just stay. I've, like I said, I won't ever really play the solo from beginning to end, but I will stay in a certain vibe, know that I have to get somewhere else, and I'll just see how am I going to get there. And there are times where I'm like, I just, I ran out of gas. I just couldn't make the transition. I didn't have the mental capacity to be thinking while I was playing some of the hardest things I can play. Uh, so I'm trying to dial back the difficulty of things so that I have more more cpu to think like okay let's do this and do this but it, it's it's going good I, i'm excited about it and it's really like the first time i've tried to work out a solo since PASIC in 2012 even though i've played a lot of solos since then they were more like eh, it's it's at the end of a song and i just vamp for a little while or mm-hmm. i'm soloing but not really because i just taught and now i'm demoing what i was teaching so it's not like a composed piece yeah so yeah. yeah, so it should be fun, man. How's your prep for PASIC coming? Uh, still in the um, – the. I mean, that's just tough because I've got like all the outline and everything and I'm just – I'm still – I haven't sat down and actually tried to do anything on the drum jet. Mm-hmm. I'm still just kind of putting the ideas and trying to figure out what – So it's in your mind. Yeah, what's the most important topics. I mean, I, I kind of know the general um, goal of for my hour, but – I'm trying to just kind of zero in because I know that if I try to do six topics, it's going to be too many. So I've got to got to really figure out which ones are the most valuable given the the people that are going to be there and kind of their interests. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go. What I learned from seeing Steve Smith last year was that he was able to deliver seemingly very simple stuff in a way that was still relevant for everyone. And then he was also able to go into advanced stuff that wasn't too far advanced that people were like, all right, I'm never ever going to do that and walk out. So trying to like, you know, like tightrope that, like, I don't want to be so basic and fundamental, but also don't want to assume that everyone has done the basic and fundamental stuff that I'm going to talk about. So that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I want to get to the fun stuff, which is where I'm currently practicing, but I can't assume that like steps one through five before that, Everyone's like, yeah, 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 I know that. Move on. Yeah, it, that's a balance too because when you're when you're teaching that stuff, you feel the energy of the part of the crowd that is saying, yeah, yeah, yeah I know that. <laughs> but there's fewer of them than there are of people that are pretending, yeah, 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 I know that. It's like, no, you don't. If I brought you up on stage and asked you to do this, you would fail. And yeah. I don't mean that to sound rude, but I've been teaching camps for a long time. Like, everybody good on that? Yep, we got it, Teach. Cool. Jason, come on up. No, I'm good. <laughs> okay. Well, you just said you had it. Well, no, I don't have it like that. I just mean I get it. It's like, uh, yeah, I can put in the work later. No, you won't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I think it's important just to say, and, and maybe you acknowledge their overconfidence in themselves by saying something like, look, I know a lot of us know this intuitively, but there's never a time that going over this again isn't helpful. I'm still rehashing my own basics so you kind of disarm the crowd with like look i know this is basic that way they can still have the look on their face around their peers like yeah i got this but in their minds they're like thank you so much for explaining this because i have no idea what the hell you're talking about yeah and sometimes just getting getting explained something basic in a different way is just as valuable at least it has been for me like going to see a john riley clinic where he talking about max roach's stuff that i'd been transcribing for years but he just had a slightly different way of presenting it and also just made me rethink some of the stuff i transcribed and yeah so that i'm trying to just keep in mind all my own experiences going to clinics and the ones that might have seemed more basic and fundamental were actually i think the ones that i went away with like yes i can 
I can practice that new way to do that old thing again. Right. Um, well, so, the other thing that might help you a little bit is, and it, it might not be something you need to say. Sometimes I actually say it out loud. Sometimes it's just in my head. But my thought is, for those of you that need this fundamental basic information, fantastic. And for those of you that are too advanced for it, you're probably teaching somebody else. So maybe I'm going to give you a new way to explain this fundamental information to your students. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Uh, so that way it's like everyone's going to get something, whether it's you playing it or you passing this information on to someone else. We're in, we're in the right wheelhouse. All right, well, hey, let's get into uh, – yeah, what's do, up? Before we do, we've got – Don't tell the, me we uh, had an intro. No. Oh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> Because we're only 15 minutes deep. <laughs> All right. So that was Nick. Uh, <laughs> Nick, he sounded so good. That was my favorite beat of the year. Uh, oh, he even like sent it in with music. So you want to listen to a little bit more of it? <laughs> yes, right. I do. Okay, all let's get serious. That was a dope groove, and I love that kind of music. So, Nick, thank you for letting me speak over the top of that. Did he give us any breakdown on what he was using? Yeah, he's using one of the um, one of the old made in Japan Yamaha recording custom kits with a twenty inch bass drum. Uh, what's he got? Zildjian cymbals, Shore Beta ninety eights on the flats. Does that mean cymbals? Maybe or toms? Flats? Flats? I don't know. Pats? <laughs> the Beta 98 is a, like a Tom mic. It's that little like gooseneck thing. So, okay. I'm assuming Tom's EVRE 320 on the kick and AKG 214 up top. I guess that's overheads. He's using an old Mackie Firewire, which I have one of those boards. Those are great. And he's using Logic Pro, another Logic Pro user. So, thanks, Nick. Nice. That was awesome. That's the perfect kit for that genre, too. Yeah, it was super cool. It fits right in there. All right. So, Last week, we started a new segment. This week, we will continue on. This is Guess That Snare. So Mike's job here is to listen to it. I gave him kind of my standard tuning, which would be medium high and then a low tuning. And his job is to figure out at least some of the attributes. I don't expect him to nail the model number or the brand or anything like that. But we're trying to figure out the properties and maybe the size uh, and some other stuff. So let's get into it. Want to give it a listen? Yes, do it. So just a reminder, everybody, that uh, every time I do this, it'll be the same setup as far as that is a single-ply texture-coated head with no muffling whatsoever, and I've got just an overhead microphone uh, about maybe four feet above the snare drum and then a little bit of bass drum mic mixed in. So I think what these tests are proving is that if you don't know what, what it is, the differences are subtle, right? Oh my gosh! What? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't see, like, oh yeah, that's obviously a mahogany drum. Yeah. The <laughs> other thing that it proves is I can tell you right now that the first snare and this snare are in very, very different price brackets. And if you have a decent microphone and you can tune your drum, all drums sound pretty damn good. Yeah. Now some have more character, some sound stellar, but you can. They all kind of sound like drums. It sounds yeah. like a snare drum, you know. Yeah. So what do you, first of all, let's go with shell properties. Do you think it's metal or wood? Um, my my first instinct said wood because the overtones didn't like spray out in a way that I'm accustomed to. So that's my first guess. 
You are correct, sir. Ding, right. ding, ding, ding. And I think it's it a, is a wood drum. It's a deeper wood drum, or at least it's not a well, piccolo. I mean, it's not a piccolo. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not my uh, ANF sixteen by one. Um, no, it is. Um, that's a really correct observation, even though you're incorrect. But you'll know why later. So um, I'll give you the size. It's a it's a five by fourteen. Okay. Is it, can I just assume a, that if you if it's your drum, it's a five or a five and a half? <laughs> uh, I'm going to next time it'll be something different. I'll find the shallowest or deepest thing I have. But there's a reason why I think that you hear that, and I, I mean you're absolutely correct. So um, it's a five by fourteen wood drum. Can I guess it's a solid shell? It's close. Stave is it a stave drum? It is not. No, I thought it sounded like a solid is, shell to me. There is something about it. So, so what is giving it that deeper sound is the fact that it's a vintage drum. Oh, interesting. So this, it's got that like kind of deadness to it, um, even though it still has some really pure overtones. It's just got a deeper sound than most of my wood snares, and um, it's got very, very little hardware on it. This is a six lug drum. Oh, wow. Okay. So what is it? This is a 1960s Gretsch Dixieland snare. Interesting. So it's a 60s round badge. Uh, So you've got really round edges. Uh, You've got, uh, what was the Dixieland? Maybe, I'm trying to think of what the wood was at that time. Um, If if they were using... um, What year is it? 63? Yeah, I mean, they, they're all listed as 60s Gretsch Dixieland snares anytime you try to look these things up. Yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe someone who's a Gretsch historian will know. I don't know when they switched over to the – is it six-ply? I don't know when they switched over. I, yeah, I, this is definitely a six-ply. It's not a three-ply shell, and I don't know – see, this. what I don't know is, is it a Jasper shell or is it when they moved away from Jasper? Um, so, oh, yeah, it says it is a Jasper shell. Yeah, it's got the gum – Gum, yep. gum and maple. Yeah, and now the 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 Dixieland snare. Yeah, I would assume it's probably maple gum 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 maple. But the Dixieland snare, if you get a really old one, it did come with the single flanged hoops and the claws. This has diecast hoops, so it's ah. a six six lug diecast. The reason why I wanted to show you guys this is because you can get this snare, which is a great vintage snare to have in your collection. And you can hear, especially if you A-B, I know it would be kind of hard to do, but if you A-B'd last week's podcast to this week, you can hear it's it's a very different drum. And it it just has a different sound than brass. But you can get these for 300 bucks. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. If it's in fantastic condition, you're probably looking closer to five. Uh, this is the one that I got from Nelson Drum Company. Nice. So, and every time I put it on the kit, I'm, I'm reminded this is not a – a decoration piece for my wall. This is a very playable snare drum that I truly enjoy playing. So, did they uh, did they recut the bottom edges or anything? Because it sounded like Just, really clean. Yeah the 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 bottom edge was actually to a point that Bryson was like, I don't feel comfortable sending this out. Do you mind if we recut the bottom edges? So okay, wow, good call. Yeah, Look at you. It didn't sound like because I've played some old drums of that era, and sometimes they're like hitting a wet box. Yeah, you know the the drum that you helped Amber pick out for me that we both have that Slingerland mm-hmm. was it a Radio King or um, that drum has even more of a vintage sound than this. This one's a pretty playable snare drum. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I would have guessed a, a solid maple like a Craviato yeah. or something. Nice. Well, there we go. All right, everyone, let's get into mail time. So, just so you know, we're we, we've just got so much mail piling up that we need to knock out as many of these as we can. Because some of you have been waiting, you know, three or four months to buy your splash symbol because you want to know what we think (laughs) about the recommendation. (laughs) If you should get a splash or five pairs of hot rods, you need to hear from us. We get it. Let's do this. All right. We're going to start with an audio question. This is from Big Al. Hey, Mike and Mike. This is Big Al. So great show. Keep up the good work. So I had a question. I'm in a band in California, Los Angeles with an actor in a five-piece band. And sometimes the actor gets off time. Actually, all of us sometimes do. So anyway, the bass player the other day suggested that when we play live at gigs, that I should have a click track going on in my ear so we keep on time. 
And uh, I had never heard of doing such a thing. I don't know if that makes sense at all, or that would be a mistake. So I wanted to hear your your thoughts on that. Thanks. All right. That's a good question. My first thing's instinct, it says that will make it worse. <laughs> because yeah. if you're the only one listening to the click and the singer's not going to adjust because that's why they're getting out of time is they're they're just singing and you got to follow them. Right. You're going to be really fighting. So unless everyone is on a click or you put in some rehearsal time and it's established that, hey, dudes, I'm playing to a click. I'm not going to budge. So if you speed up, you're going to end up laughing at me. My, yeah. my guess is going to be they're not going to be too into that idea. <laughs> you know? I, I completely agree. I think a better idea would probably be in your next rehearsal. <clears throat> excuse me. Use the app Live BPM so that you can show them where the song started and where the song ended. It, it'll yeah. have a graph and everything. And it'll say, yeah, we started at 105 and we ended at 122. Or maybe you're not completely rushing or dragging. Maybe you're just getting off time for a little bit. The graph will show you. When we hit the chorus, you can see the spike. We jumped up like 15 BPM because I had to follow your vocals there. Um, yeah, it's tough. Talking about time with your band, it's, you're just yeah. you're looking for an uncomfortable argument. <laughs> Especially, I mean, an actor that's the front person. Ooh, Ooh yeah. Man. <laughs> Ugh, that's, you, you just... Yeah, that'd be the quickest a, way to get stuff. fired. I think actually to be like, "Hey, I'm right, you're wrong." Yeah, well, guess what? I'll get somebody else who doesn't believe that. <laughs> right. Well, that's the, that, another thing that you have to understand is everyone that's getting off time, they don't know that it's happening in yeah. their minds. It's like, God, this drummer's really slowing down the chorus. <laughs> it's like because it couldn't be me rushing the chorus. So, uh, but yeah, I, I would definitely check out Live BPM. At least it'll also give you a representation, so you know. For a fact, no, we are really jumping up quite a bit here, or we're slowing down a lot here, and you'll be able to visually see it. It's a, it's a, it's not the greatest user interface, but it it does its job really well. Yeah, it's pretty darn accurate. I use it whenever I'm learning songs. If I have to just write down the BPM, it's been spot on. Uh, okay, let's go to the Prince questions. The first one's from Tony. Tony says, "I enjoyed your discussion on drum solos, including their enjoyment by drummers versus non-drummers. Recently, I saw Dave Weckl play, um, and he." blew the doors off the plates when he finished i could not help but laugh it was amazing and funny at the same time have you ever had a drum solo make you laugh (laughs) Uh, laugh i I mean i guess yeah i've kind of shaken my head at what is physically possible yeah Yeah, what's possible on the instrument and how i'm clearly not playing the same instrument they are yeah Uh, right like oh you play those kinds of drums i don't do that I'm, I make beats and fills. Oh, I'm yeah. Not, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think you and I have both talked quite a bit about our favorite solos and the ones that left us in disbelief. Um, I'm yeah. still, you know, I still feel that Dave DeCenzo's Modern Drummer solo is one of the best of all time as far as you could be a nerd and get so much just drum nerd stuff out of it, or you could just be like, wow, that sounds cool, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think any any range of emotional reactions is kind of what you want, whether you do something that's just so ridiculous that it makes them just laugh and, like, kind of like you're watching someone do a dunk, like a really f- amazing dunk. Right. Like, you just have yeah. to laugh because, like, how the heck did they do that? But, right, you yeah. Know, so I'm looking for any reaction. I've definitely laughed. I've definitely been completely awestruck, like shocked, can't move by some people. Yeah. I've been kind of urged to jump out of my seat at times. I've been urged oh, yeah. to pick up my cell phone and check Instagram during some drum solos. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Reaction. I think really the what I want out of a drum solo from someone else is I want to see a window, a snapshot into their current mindset. I don't want to see the solo they did in 1986. Um, I want to see, like, what are you working on now? What, what, what turns you on about drumming now? But it has to be a combination of technique and taste. It can't just be technique. Like if it's only difficult, I get nothing out of it. Like yeah. you said, I'll, I will just check my phone. It's like, and it could be something that's ten years beyond where I'm at currently, but it still does nothing for me because there's no taste to it. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, but but somebody could play something really simple. I mean, I've watched Steve Jordan's drum solo when he was demoing. It's weird. I think it's a Vic Firth video, but it's a Yamaha. He was like demoing a Yamaha club kit or something. Yeah, the like club custom. Orange. Yeah, when they relaunched yeah. it. I've watched that thing a, a thousand times. Yeah, and he he doesn't do a beat. single fill past sixteenth <laughs> note triplets, yeah. if that. 
you know. Um, but yeah, so I think it just comes down to taste. Yeah. All right, next. Uh, this is kind of a funny one. This is from Jay. What do we have to do to get one or both of you for a week on late night with Seth Meyers? <laughs> oh. Um, I think just put in a good word. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> Throw out a request. I think they would probably take Mike first because they'd look at the budget and go, well, he could drive here. We'd have right. to fly Johnston out. So uh, so I, I don't see it in my future. I mean, you and I have both had enough friends do it recently that I've thought like, would I want to do that? And then I thought like, when when could I do it? And no, it's not that I don't want to do it. It's just not my thing, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's certainly But cool. I do. I do like, though, that the Seth Meyers thing is you actually are just a drummer doing that job for the week rather than throw down every time we go to break. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, cool. I would like that for the experience for I th- sure. But I think so Fred Armisen might be back for a while. I don't remember. I mean, I guess the whole oh, idea— Oh, was he the original drummer for that? Yeah, originally he got that gig, and then all of a sudden his acting career took off. So he's essentially okay. been out of, you know, not a part of that show for a long time. But I'm pretty sure he is the he is the drummer. He's the band leader drummer for that I've I've always show. wondered why they haven't just had— a drummer like why don't they just get a drummer yeah like, i think it was him and that was just their well you're not going to be here then we're going to get a bunch of guest drummers and we'll do a little thing that's cool it's cool all right next one's from dylan um my question is about drum tuning in the studio i've always thought that tuning drums to the key of a song isn't all that necessary unless you have something really prominent like a ringy snare that you want to bring out in the mix what are your thoughts on tuning each drum to the key of the song and are toms more important than snare or vice versa all you man um, okay, I have two answers to this that are completely contradictory. If I'm going <laughs> to a studio that's not mine and they have a kit there and it sounds great and I hit the drums and they sound awesome, I don't touch a thing. If it's my room, then I'm going to do everything I can to get the drums to sound within the track the best as possible. So I do spend time getting the toms either to play the root or the fifth of the primary chord of the song. Snare drum, it's just the root third or fifth, depending on what type of sound fits the song best um but it's not essential i think i think if the drum just sounds good it's going to be fine unless you're like tuned a half step away from the key then it's going to be this kind of clash but right it's not crucial i like to do it just because peace of mind i know that the drums are sitting in the right tonality but every time i go to someone else's studio that's the last thing i worry about gotcha so that's kind of it so as as someone that doesn't I, I just don't record with a lot of artists so i don't do that stuff very much how do you go about doing that do you actually have like a keyboard nearby i have the tune bot i think it's i have a, I have a tune bot in each of my like bags okay. like a cymbal bag has a tune bot in it for gigs oh, okay yes yeah, so, so it's not like that. you're doing it by ear and going like no what i do is i use um i can't remember what the app is but there's like a chromatic tuner app that you know, if I'm listening to the song, I'll just sing what I think is the root note. And then once I know if it's in the key of D or whatever, then I'm tuning the drums to D or A or snare maybe to F or F sharp, depending on if that's the right sound. Okay. Uh, but that's it. And I just do the fundamental tone. I don't I don't go crazy with it. Just okay. In cool. The, a bass drum, too, even. Um, wow. So, awesome. Yeah, but that's not something that I think you need to hold up a session when, when someone's, <laughs> you know, renting out a... Five hundred thousand right, dollars right. studio. Like, hold up, my second rack tom is not right. Right, if the drum sound. By good, the way, he means fine. five hundred to a thousand dollars a day. Yeah, right. It doesn't mean they <laughs> spent five hundred dollars total on their studio. <laughs> like, sorry, man, we couldn't get a roof. <laughs> Waiting for investment. Uh, all right, cool. That's a great answer. All right, it's time for our mid-show. Uh, thank you for to Sweetwater, a new sponsor for the show. So, thank you so much for jumping in on this episode. Um, Other than buying, I actually do have great experience of buying gear. I've had really good customer service. I bought my audio interface from them. I recently bought a uh, solid-state hard drive from them. I just basically said, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I need. What do you recommend? They gave me a great great suggestion, and it's been awesome. But you've actually been there, right? I've been there, and and honestly – as someone that is sending business somewhere, I have to send it somewhere. I have campers and I have students. Uh, they all, they never disappoint. I just had a camper yesterday tell me, he goes, dude, I bought a drum key from them. And someone called me a week later to find out how it was doing. That's <laughs> weird. Like, that's, drum key. <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. I'm like, that's Sweetwater. That's the level of customer service they have. Yeah. I have been there. And just knowing 
what everyone there goes through before they're actually helping you, how much studying they do, how much preparation they do, how much they learn about the gear that you're eventually going to be buying. You truly are talking to an expert on the phone, which I think is amazing. They're that invested in it. But the the one thing that a lot of people don't know is it's not just some random warehouse in Indiana. I mean, it's amazing. It's There's a world-class studio there. There's a theater there. There's there's a gosh darn food court there. <laughs> so it's uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those places where when you go there, you feel the good vibes and you can just tell how into music they are. They are extremely, extremely invested in drums. And so they have it, I would say in the last three years, they have just made this huge shift towards putting a massive focus on drums and they carry pretty much everything you're looking for. It's a pretty amazing place. All right. We got another one from Neil. Uh, Neil from Vancouver, British Columbia says, I just returned from a five week tour across Canada where we went through several different weather conditions. Since returning, I found it harder to tune my toms. I use coded ambassadors as the resonance and coded emperors as the batters. My question is, is, is it worth changing both the batter and resonant heads or would just the batter heads suffice? Also, would this, mm. Uh, would this harder to dial in tuning be my lack of experience or does changing heat being used night after night and being used at night after night cause this to happen? Um, I think humidity is probably the bigger issue, right? If the heads yeah. get wet and the coating gets like kind of damp. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that could affect it, but definitely it depends too. going from hot to cold. I mean, you're expanding and contracting. So for sure, you know, I remember as a kid when you have your drums in the garage and you have your summer tuning as soon as like winter comes yeah right it's a very different drum set and it's like oh well now i have to tune for winter so if you're kind of loading in and out doing an outdoor gig in the sun and then it goes into a car and then uh overnight it's cold i mean it could definitely be contracting and expanding a little bit even maybe the shells the tiniest tiniest bit so um i i would i mean if when i was touring i retuned every single day yeah, I mean, retuned the, but not reheaded, right? Right. So as far as the reheading, you know, I I would say maybe after a long tour, you've played the hell out of them, you've played the hell out of them in a bunch of different weather conditions. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. changing heads. But I, I would never I would never discount the rezo heads. That's that's something I learned early on is I don't take the rezo head for granted. I I turn it over, I hit it with my finger, I'm I'm listening for like, does it still have the resonance it used to have? Yeah. Um, the other thing is be careful. Sometimes you want more resonance and then all you're going to do is put tape on it. So maybe sometimes when your head finally dies, it just got to where it should be. So <laughs> it's a weird thing. Like yeah. I need the most resonance. I need this sustained system. And then you put gels and tape everywhere. Yeah, they gate them. And you know, for me, the yep. first thing to fall out of tune is the bottom head too. It's kind of not what you would yeah. think. It, if the drum sounds really sour, there's probably one lug that just got detuned and you yep. have to yeah. pull it back up. There, there's nothing worse than the end of the show. You look down and you see that one tension rod on the ground from your floor, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, that's why it's been going <laughs> all night. I've definitely lost a few tension rods over the years when I get home. Like, what? There's like three uh, rods missing on this yeah. snare drum. <laughs> and then for some reason, I never have the length that's missing. Yeah. It's, it's like I just have between. these. <laughs> yeah. I have like the CNC single lug tension rod. I'm like, this thing's nine inches long. I have another one of these. Uh, All right, next question. All right, this one's from Paul. I recently read the article on drumheads, which we talked about last episode. Um, I found it to be very informative. However, there was one piece of info I couldn't find. I know the heads are made of mylar, but what is the coating used on white-coated heads made of? I think it's. I've seen them spray it on, but I don't know what it is. I think it's spray paint with sand or some type of grit material. There is grit, yeah. And I know that because as Aquarian and I were trying out some different heads, they said we could add a lighter grit to the coating, um, which I would assume means we could add lighter grit to the paint. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think that's kind of all it is is some white paint and some grit. Yeah. I mean, the exception would be the Evans UV1 system, which. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I believe it's an applique that's put on the entire head, more like a sticker than wow. an actual Oh, wow. Coating. Okay. Very cool. All right. We got one from Dustin. Do you find yourselves listening primarily to music for pleasure? Huh? Do you find yourself primarily listening to music for pleasure that you would enjoy playing on the drums or not? 
Uh, I consider myself okay. a funk rock drummer, but I realize that I rarely actually sit down and listen to funk, just a lot of pop, alternative, and classic rock. So what's he asking? Do you find yourself He's, he's kind of asking, do you listen to music that you want to be playing, or do you listen to music just to listen to it? Do you find, <laughs> is that what he's asking? Dustin, help yeah, us I mean, out here. Do you find yourself primarily <laughs> listening to music for pleasure that you would enjoy playing on the drums or not? Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So he considers himself a funk drummer, but doesn't actually listen to that music for when he right. wants to But wants to, to play it, but he's not listening to it. And I get it, man. I, I mean, I think the it's tough to listen to music all the time when your life is built around playing music. Um, I would say the songs that I like the most are not very drum centric songs. Every once in a while, I, I like pop, you know, and every once in a while, I luck out and get a sting thing where I'm like, okay, this is a great song, great pop tune. And I want to go play it on the drums, you know? Mm. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm currently in my favorite musical project of my entire life. And I have not spent one second searching out music that sounds like us so that I can listen to someone else do it. Well, yeah, so, there's a good argument for not doing that. Like you don't want to change your approach to that type of music because you hear what everybody else in that genre does on the drums for that type of music. It's, it's the exact same thing with business. Uh, I, you know, probably people wouldn't believe me, but I've, I can't remember the last time I went to an online drum lesson website. It's like, I, I'm more scared that I'm going to steal stuff like accidentally. Mm. Cause it'd be like, Oh, that's a cool idea. It's like, I don't want to know. Honestly, I, if I'm looking at in, for inspiration, I, a lot of times I go to fitness websites where they're delivering video content and they're trying to keep you engaged and keep you progressing because fitness is always about progression and I want to do that with drums. But so musically and business-wise, I try to stay away from things that are similar to what I'm doing because I just don't know how heavily I'll be influenced and I just really don't want that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I... I kind of have a threshold of how bad can the drumming be before I will listen to it. <laughs> you know? Right. Like yeah. There's, agreed. There is a certain, you know, I think the Cheese argument factor. yeah, that a, that a band is only as good as a drummer, I think is really true in most cases. Uh, but that said, most successful bands are successful. They're not going to have a bad drummer. I mean, so right. for me, I listen to everything. I like everything. I like playing everything. So I kind of don't have much of a discrepancy. I mean, except for I listen to a lot of ambient music that has no drums, but I still find that inspiring as a drummer because I'm hearing rhythmic textures that, that are being created by reverse cymbal sounds and things like that. Right. Uh, I think I just go in and out of music or not music. I'm either in a podcast phase, in an audiobook phase, yeah, or sure. I'm in a music phase. But styles to me don't really matter that much. All right. You want to go through a couple more audio questions? Let's do it. All right. We got our good friend Nick Murray in Poughkeepsie. Hey, Mike and Mike, this is Nick from Poughkeepsie again. Uh, thanks for taking another one of my questions. I really appreciate it. Uh, this one's about drum choices at live gigs where you're getting mic'd up. Um, this year, I have a lot of gigs at pretty decent-sized venues, and I have a few different snares to choose from. Um, I've got a black on brass. I've got a, uh, an aluminum drum and some different wood ones, and it's for heavy rock music. And I know that there's a difference between getting mic'd up in the studio and getting mic'd up at a gig. Um, so I was just curious what your guys' experiences are with these type of things and what drums you found to be the best um, choice for these types of situations and maybe why. All right, thank uh, you. First of all, Nick, I, I think it's time for Nick to start his own podcast. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, dude, that dude is a fixture on the show. Either that or like... We need to do a drum clinic tour together, me, you, and Nick. Um, congrats on all the gigs, buddy. Uh, so I, I guess I have a question to follow up with what he's talking about for you. Yeah. It kind of seems to me that the drummer part of us that tells us we got to have resonance and we got to have tone and everything, it's it's kind of incorrect when it comes to microphones. I've, I've almost always found, whether it be live or studio, that – having things less live than you think they should be works out better for microphones. Um, yeah. It gives the producer more, or the mixing engineer in, in Nick's case, more options. I, th I think that's why vintage drums are so popular for recording because they're just deader. They're, that's, they're just right. deader than... And I think there, you know, the industry has created these super loud resonant drums for drummers who need to cut through their band in rehearsal and there's no microphones and they kind of right. you know, do a lot of work for you. But... I actually have a, 
uh, I know exactly what he's talking about. So I think the reason that we have the pork pie big blacks and the uh, pearl sensitones, for me, those are perfect gigging drums because they do, they give you enough sound, but not too much sound. They're durable, but they're not super expensive. So case in point, I took a amazing drum, Joyful Noise, uh, seamless brass drum to a gig a couple years ago. Oh, my God. And it literally Did you have a handcuff to to it. Like, that's insane. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I didn't. It didn't leave my sight, but okay. Uh, and it was a it was a review drum. It was had so much sound. It was making the vocal mic feedback. Like it was producing wow. so much tone that there was a frequency that just caused the vocal mic to feedback. Contrary oh to that, if I if I take the pork pie big blackout it sounds pretty darn close to the joyful noise but it's not shooting so much tone all across the stage right so i do yeah. i do think there's very in but the joyful noise for in the studio if you just kind of mute it down a little bit it sounds it sounded 10 times bigger so it just had wow you know so i think yes there's a very big difference between what i would take to a gig i rarely take anything that i know was like the most humongous tone producing yeah 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 well that's the thing is the you know outdoor festival is one thing but when i go to a club and i hit my bass drum and it's not mic'd it already goes douche and i'm like oh my gosh that guy's gonna mic it so if i and then i always here's where it really happens and i know that you've experienced this whoever the opening act is or maybe it's the headliner doesn't matter but one of the other drummers will have the worst flappy paper sounding kit in the history of the world and then they mic it up, and his kit sounds ten times better than mine. Yeah, yeah. If yeah, like, microphones involved, it's a totally different thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, I think uh, the whatever your black over brass is, Nick, take that. You'll be fine, and just bring some gaff tape. All right. So let's see. Actually, this is a comment, not a, uh, a question. We're going to do this one real quick. This is from John. He's he's actually commenting on your. Uh, depth versus diameter or diameter versus depth dilemma oh boy okay he's pointing out that maybe it's because you used to play yamaha and yamaha still does diameter by depth i guarantee that's what it is yeah Um, (laughs) yeah well well i think it's from when i started learning about drums there was no depth so as a kid I had a 12-inch tom, a 13-inch tom. I didn't have a 12 by 8 and a 13 by 9. Mm. I just had a 12. So I always said the diameter because that's all it was to me as a child. Then I grew up and and still, even as a as a teen in high school, my buddies and I are like, are you using a 22-inch kick or a 20? No one said 22 by 18 or 18 by 22. And then I got my first job at a music store, and we carried Yamaha, Premier, Pearl, Tama, so almost all Japanese brands, obviously premieres English, uh, but a lot of them were doing that too, and this is in like the late 90s. So it wasn't until, and then uh, I got my deal with DW Drums, and I think maybe they, do they do depth first? I'm pretty sure they do the old school way, yeah. Okay, and then I went from there to Yamaha, and I was with Yamaha for like five years, so they let me say what I wanted again. That was beautiful. <laughs> Freedom. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know why. It's just it's weird to me that like it's an 18-inch Tom. It's If it's an 18-inch by four, I can't say that it's a four-inch Tom. <laughs> like it's not. It's an 18-inch Tom. God, I get so pissed about this. Like. It's a 22-inch bass drums. Why would you say 18 first? When you say 18, I go bop, and then you go by 22, and I go, oh, and I fall down, and I go, oh, I had something totally different in my head. So you're just pointing out your impatience and lack of attention. <laughs> I have plenty of attention. I just don't have the two seconds it takes you to say the next number. Because it's like, cool, I'll wait until you get the next number out. Why don't you just tell me what the number is in the first place? Uh, I still do it every time. And now because of this stupid podcast, now I'm getting all hot because of this podcast. Now everyone calls me out on, on Instagram. They're like, it's a, it's a five by 14. It's not a five inch snare drum. I, I can't find a five inch head anywhere. Hey, you can take so, it up with Fred Gretsch. All right. <laughs> Freddie, it's Mike Johnston. <laughs> Get Paul Cooper on the line. Let's do this. I don't really Let's care what you say, but Fred might. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think we all know that I'm 
a little bit crazy. All right, <laughs> let's get to another audio question. All right, this you want to do uh, John Dickey? John Dickey. Greetings, Mike and Mike. This is John from Highland, Michigan. Uh, thanks for your great podcast. Just had a quick question for you. Um, I hear the word punchy getting thrown around a lot these days in reviews and in drum ads, and it seems to be getting applied to uh, kits that really uh, fall across a wide spectrum, don't really sound like each other. So um, just had a quick question for you. A, maybe you could come up with a definition of what uh, punchy exactly is or sounds like, and then B, maybe put together a list of uh, some drums that sound punchy as well as some drums that don't sound punchy. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike Johnson, for your great uh, Mike's Lessons website, and Mike Dawson for all your work at Modern Drummer. Uh, appreciate right. you guys. I feel like we, the deja vu. Maybe we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we're just a little late getting to his question, but... Punchy. Agreed. How do you and, define punchy? and you and I have tried to define drumming adjectives because it's tough. We we grow up with the adjective as we're playing, so we know what it means in relationship to the sound we hear in our head, but we don't know how to describe it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about fast and washy and sizzly. Uh, so with punchy, what do you think the definition of punchy would be? I think strong attack, short mm-hmm. resonance. That would be the biggest right. thing. You know, the, the other thing that comes to mind is how fast do I hear the actual fullest note of the drum? Mm-hmm. So instead of like, doom, but it's, is it like, do I hear that thing right away and it's gone? Um, where with something like he mentioned in the Gretsch line, let's take the most modern drum set that Gretsch has to offer. If you were going to play rock, straight up rock, you're going to want to go with the Gretsch Renown. Even if you had all the money in the world to spend, the Renown is going to be the most modern thing. It's got a ton of attack, but it's not the punchiest drum. It's right. got just a ton of attack, and the, the tone actually happens a little later. Um, and it's got a long decay, where with something like – I think that the Brooklyn, for me, that feels the punchiest as far as I hit it and I get this whoop, like this really quick um, swell of the tone as fast as possible – and then it's got a fairly quick de- decay. Then you go all the way to the broadcaster and you think, well, that's the deadest drum they have. It must be the punchiest. And it's like, uh, it's it's not because the tone doesn't actually reach its maximum potential really ever, unless you're cranked up to like a bop tuning. Mm. But if you're playing a pop gig on a broadcaster, it's just kind of dead and thuddy. But that doesn't mean it's punchy to me because I need the maximum tone to kind of hit me in my chest and then go away as fast as possible. Okay. So I'm thinking like if you talk about synthesis – terminology you've got every every waveform has an attack a sustain and a decay so you're saying the length of all three of those need to be pretty tight but to sustain but the attack needs and sustain need to be very close together so you've got the strong attack immediately followed by the sustain but it doesn't linger forever and a decay rolls off quickly right bro someone should write that stuff down yes that's exactly (laughs) what i was saying all right there's your punchy all right, thank you. That was John. So we, we're coming to the end here, and we've got still another million, so we might have to do another all-listener question episode. Do you want to try to do maybe one more email, and then we'll get the picks of the week, or what are you feeling? Let's do it. All right, this one comes from Michael Rafter. Uh, from a teaching perspective, do you have any suggestions when you have a regular student who just continues to struggle with their timing? I've tried counting exercises, clapping exercises, and regularly use a metronome, but sometimes students just don't seem to improve, or it's very slow, and I struggle as a teacher wondering if I should just keep doing the same thing or try new creative ways to help them. That's a tough one. From my experience, uh, it's just like ear training when you're trying to learn intervals and recognizing chords. It takes time, and everyone's different, I think. You can't force someone to hear accurate rhythm if they don't want to or care about it or they just need more time, no pun intended, they literally need more time. <laughs> yeah, and the the word that Mike used, uh, which is the biggest word of that entire phrase, was care. If they don't care, it's not going to happen. But I will say this as a drum teacher. So there's drum mentor. That's what I had in Pete Magadini and you know that's what Mark Juliana had in uh, Joe Bergamini. There's private drum teacher, which I was to many people back in the day. That's a different world. That's mm-hmm. half hour bang bang lessons. Let's go. Yep. And what I would say in that world is 
everything has to do with time. You don't need to make them aware of it. You need them to learn paradiddles. They learn paradiddles to a metronome. You need them to uh, learn their subdivisions. They're going to learn it with a song that was recorded to a click track. Make sure that perfect time is incorporated into everything you're making them practice. It's just behind the scenes. That's very, um, very smart. You just don't talk about it. Just make them do it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. Cool. Uh, and we'll hear more from Michael Rafter in a little bit because he's our outro groove. That's right. You already got it, so you're not going to skip over this. <laughs> no, I'm trying. So I'm like, I'm literally staring at his name on the rundown. I'm like, just keep looking at it. Keep looking at it. Don't forget that he plays the beat when we stop talking. <laughs> All right, it's time for picks of the week. Do you want to go first? I went uh, first last week. Yeah, sure. So my pick okay. of the week is a, another snare drum that I got reacquainted with uh, for a session. It's probably a drum that everyone who played drums in the 90s has either experienced or owned bought and sold at some point mm-hmm. it's the old classic pearl three by 13 brass piccolo snare man i mean you think that thing i mean it's legendary like it's legendary <laughs> because we could all afford it yeah i know you can get them used now for under 150 bucks i picked mine up because i had sold mine I that's mean, weird because new they're 99 bucks I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt like that. They were like so affordable back then. I think, I mean, now uh, the prices are probably a little bit higher, maybe around 200 bucks. but you can find them used all day for yeah. under that um, until they're all bought up. But anyway, I don't use it as a piccolo at all. I tune it super low. I put a towel on it. I use it for triggering. You know, it's basically my, if I want my drum to sound like the uh, Lindrum snare drum or something, this is it. It's it's really fast, it's really compact, but it's really deep. Um, actually, I, I want to drop in like five seconds of this track I recorded. Yeah, you should, for sure. It sounded great. All right, so check it out. All right, so you sh- that... Recording also has a trigger where it hand claps are given a lot of the the white noise smack, but you can hear that the actual snare drum sound, that's 100% that drum. There's no other sound. Well, not to mention that snare drum isn't fighting the hand claps. Yeah, it's sitting underneath. It's kind of yep. pushing. So that's a cool drum to get. I think you should check it out. Not to use as a piccolo unless that's your, your vibe, but tune it super low, muffle it down. It's pretty yeah. surprising. That um, The snare that I have on the left of my kit really is... It's. I mean, it's a three by thirteen. It's the ANF Rude Boy. So uh, yeah, they um, did kind of bring that vibe back, didn't they? Yeah, and it was definitely it was brought back with a low tuning. Like mm-hmm. I've never even I've never even tried to crank the drum up. I don't know what it would do. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I know if I need to go three eleven, I've got that. But yeah, it, it sounds great. So uh, all right. Well, my pick of the week is uh, a company called Moment Lenses. M O M E N T. Moment Lenses. They make professional level lenses for your iphone um and for your i don't know if it's smartphones in general or just iphone let me check oh yeah um they have it for pixel galaxy iphone note 8 so they have it for everything and uh you can just go to shopmoment.com. but my actual pick of the week is something pretty incredible mr dawson do you know what an anamorphic lens is if you don't that's okay no but i think i know what an anamorphic person looks like (laughs) (laughs) Ah. Okay. All right. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> so the anamorphic lens, uh, watching a J.J. Abrams movie, have you ever seen how he has those blue streaks that kind of go across the frame anytime he passes by a light? If, if you saw it, I guarantee you would recognize okay. it. Anytime no. Star Trek passes by a light, there's these like blue streaks that yeah. go through okay. the frame. So an anamorphic lens will create that, um, but it also gives you a really amazing shallow, shallow depth of field. A, a good anamorphic lens for your DSLR camera is going to cost you about $15,000. This one is $119, and I'm telling you, it does a really good job. So the moment thing is very it's, – it's serious lenses for your iPhone. You actually buy a case, and then the lenses that you buy, whether you get a wide-angle lens, a fisheye lens, a portrait lens, or this anamorphic lens, it screws into the case. Uh, so wow. it's 
you know, this is definitely not just something that you get at Sky Mall and slap it onto your phone. These are if you actually want to start making legit footage and making some some real videos with your phone, uh, this is the way to go. So the anamorphic lens by Moment Lenses is only one hundred nineteen dollars. I know that sounds like a lot of money to put on your phone, but like I said, this would be if you didn't want to get into the world of full-blown lenses and DSLR cameras or cinema cameras, this would be an alternative, a cheaper alternative for you. So just go to YouTube and check out Moment Lenses or Anamorphic Lens, and you'll see some footage that will just blow you away that was all done with a phone. So I'm trying to envision, is that the stuff that kind of looks like it's time-lapse but it's not or something? No. So that would be a tilt-shift lens. Okay. And so what a, a tilt-shift lens is a different thing where it, it kind of brings in the blur at the bottom of the screen and then the blur at the top of the screen. And then you actually usually do a time-lapse with it. Um, but you'll see a lot of that in like the uh, BBC show, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, they use okay. the tilt-shift a lot. Um, no, So an anamorphic lens, I'll send you some footage, but you'll know right away. You'll be like, oh, my God, yes, I've seen that a 100 times. Um, so, so, yeah, so check it out, Moment is, Lenses. What is it again? It's called sh- uh, shopmoment.com. Wait. There you go. Yeah. All righty. Buddy, have an amazing week. I will talk to you from camp next week, and uh, we'll be all good. Yeah, except everyone listening, you will be in China or somewhere. Or (laughs) Taiwan or Thailand or – yes, agreed. (laughs) All right, buddy. Have a great week. All right, see you. What? Oh, Mike Rafter. (laughs) Dude, I was staring at it. Ah. Michael Raptor is playing a Peace DNA series kick drum, 18 by 22 Ludwig Acolyte, Black Galaxy Snare, Aquarian Heads, 15 is UFIP Natural Series, Hi Hats, 8 and 10 is UFIP Stacker, a head stick, some kick pedal. Uh, <laughs> he's using the focus you light. Know that, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know that people are like, I don't ever want to be the outro guy. Don't ever make me the outro guy because Mike, Mike and Mike will forget about me. Dawson uh, will probably save it, but Johnson will forget about uh, it. But we probably uh, spend more time talking about the outro because we're idiots. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. So he's recorded this in GarageBand, which, again, is a very powerful, free piece of software if you have a back. Two mics. Absolutely. It's got an AKG D12 in the kick, or at least on the kick, and an Audio Technica AT2020 overhead. Dig it. Thanks, Michael.